So beginning in Ecclesiastes 9, 11, and going through the rest of the book. <laughs> it is. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, for one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what, it, what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for having scripture that you've breathed out, that you not only provided, but you continue to preserve and continue to use. We also continue to ask that you will send out workers so that all might have scripture in their language, that they may know you rightly, ultimately to worship you rightly. Father, this text talks about uh, the direction our hearts are inclining, and so we may have come in this room this morning and hearts are inclined towards sin. I pray in the name of Christ that you would change our inclinations. But as the psalmist says, that you would incline our hearts toward you, toward your word, because what we long for is what we move towards. So what we're thinking and desiring is what we head toward. And, and so, Father, we only have one life. We saw that last week in Ecclesiastes. So please help us not to waste it on the foolishness of sin. This text talks about wisdom and foolishness, and there is no wisdom in sin. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to put away foolish ways, to not waste a moment of the life that you entrust to us, but to steward each moment well, and so that we would know what you want and walk in it, which is the path of wisdom, that we would have regard for you, that we would not act as if our lives are our own, and that we can do what we want. Then we end up like the fish in the net, the bird caught in the trap. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who walk in a way that people can see Jesus. In this text, it talks about wise and foolish leaders. So we're reminded once again, we need to pray for our president, our mayor, our governor. God, we ask that you would help them to steward well the opportunity you've entrusted to them. We pray that you would silence all the voices around them that are not your own. That you would help them to lead well for your purposes. But Father, we ask that you would help us to lead well opportunities you entrust to us in our homes and our jobs. That, that what's true of the foolish leader would not be true of us. So Father, I pray that you would use your text as always not only to inform us, but to transform us. Stop wasting our life in the foolishness of sin. But to walk in the path of wisdom, your path. Grant us the grace. Because as we've already sung, we are prone to wonder, Lord. We are prone to leave the God we love. So would you truly take our hearts and seal them? Seal them for your courts above. In Jesus' name we pray. This is my dissertation uh, over two years of my life, really uh, much of my doctoral journey of reading and studying, but two years specifically of, of reading. The technical title is An Examination of Pneumatological Content in Southern Baptist Homiletic Theory Since 1870. Uh, before your eyes roll back in boredom, it just means that I spent two of my years examining every Southern Baptist preaching text for what it did or did not say about the Holy Spirit. In particular, I studied three uh, focuses, the relationship between the Spirit and the Word of God, the relationship between the Spirit and the moment of delivery, and the relationship between the Spirit and the pastor. That You cannot pursue sin all week and just ask the Holy Spirit to clean it up on Sunday. And uh, two, two years of my life uh, spent reading and studying and journeying along. And so this big book actually started from this little book. It's a book called Spirit-Empowered Preaching. And while I was still doing my seminars, my mentor, a guy named Jim Shaddix, uh, had read this book. And uh, he, I remember we were meeting in, at his house, in the, in the upper room of his house. So we would gather in, in our, our spouses. Uh, would, we would eat together, we'd pray together, and then the, the ladies would go and meet with Miss Deborah, and they would have a wonderful time laughing and doing stuff uh, while we would often watch each other's sermons and uh, offer our feedback and, and be reproved and then pray about other things. But I remember Dr. Shaddix weeping because he'd read this book and realized that he had crossed a line in sermon preparation where he had acquired enough skill to be able to take a text and break it apart and put it in a helpful form of a sermon without ever relying on the Holy Spirit at any portion of that preparation. And I remember him being broken by that and, and reproved. And, and the key to that would be this book written by Art Azurdia uh, called Spirit Empowered Preaching. And so then we would walk through this book and this book would uh, become the trajectory for my dissertation because the joke was often that uh, finding words about the Holy Spirit in, Baptist, in the Baptist world at all is like finding a needle in a haystack. Uh, and so I actually wanted to see what do our preaching texts, what did they say about the Holy Spirit? And I actually found that a majority of those preaching texts do say some things about the Holy Spirit related to those three categories I shared. And under each of those three categories, I had eight to ten subcategories and, and found that Southern Baptist texts, uh, that authors have a lot to say about preaching in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the question then becomes, then if our preaching texts say a lot about the Holy Spirit, what's happening in our training classes. And the reason that I, I even started that journey was our seminary president would get up uh, often and just remind us that 90% of Southern Baptist churches were either plateaued or declining. And perhaps could one reason be that they're plateaued or declining because their pulpits lack spirit-empowered preaching, faithful exposition of the word of God. And so all of that uh, trajectory uh, started really with, with this book, and then Friday night, I read this uh, from Art Azurdia. 
To my wife and family members, the elders and congregation of Trinity Church, the faculty of Western Seminary, and friends and colleagues, both near and abroad, someone very wise once said, pastors must be the chief repenters in a congregation of repenters. It's important this proves to be the case now, not because I haven't yet repented, but because my sin is of such a nature that I need to express my repentance to you. Several years ago, prior to the inception of Trinity Church, which is what he planted and was pastoring, I strayed from my wedding vows, breaking the covenantal bond I made to my dear wife 36 years ago. More recently, I again violated my marriage commitment. In both instances, I engaged in an adulterous relationship that were nothing less than acts of defiance to the will of God and Father, as well as expressions of profound ingratitude for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that I prize so dearly. He goes on to write the rest of it, and it's a lengthy letter, and give some, some good wisdom even in there. What happened on June 24th is that the elders of his church received uh, oh, a word from either oh, the woman he was involved in or someone who knew he was involved in it, accusing him of that, and uh, he confessed to that. So he confessed because he was caught in that. And I read that Friday night and was cut to the heart. I immediately texted my mentor, Jim Shaddix, and my really good friend, Tony Morita. And uh, Tony was out there all last week at Western Seminary teaching, where he taught multiple times with Artis Erdia. Dr. Shaddix uh, had already been in contact with Dr. Erdia and his wife, Lori, and praying with them multiple times. Uh, he's left the seminary, left his church, and they've moved to be with her elderly parents to help take care of them. And he's... Uh, this is the only thing you'll find on his website at this point and stepping away from ministry to take care of his marriage. But I remember being grieved, grieved. This is a book by Alvin Reed that I shared on Wednesday nights this semester, this past spring with, uh, with those who took the Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out course with me. This is, this is the book we used. And somewhere around June, uh, Dr. Reed, whom I teach with or did teach with, uh, was removed from the faculty at Southeastern and and everything on his website just says I've got to focus now on my marriage because of making a decision to break his marital vows serving on staff at a church with the young professionals group of his church uh, and yet he chose to engage in some form of immoral behavior with someone that was not his wife and then if you were to actually look at the signatures on my dissertation, the, the reader, you, you always have three main ones. You have your chair, and then you have a, a second that's on that, and then the reader who's usually from another department. And mine is John Gibson was my reader. He was the third on mine. This is his signature several years ago when the Ashley Madison website uh, details were revealed. His name was on that list of one who'd signed up, and. And it was a, obviously a website promoting infidelity. And uh, he was pastoring in church as well as professoring. And then when he was confronted uh, at some point later in his home, he would take his life. I just want to say, once again, overwhelmed uh, afresh, there is no wisdom in sin. There's just a lot of foolishness and pain. There's no wisdom in adultery. There's a lot of foolishness and pain. And let me remind you of something I've said to you a million times, it feels like. It may be my sin, but it is always our consequences. You know why we get called in sin? Because we refuse to confess our struggle. And do you know why we do not confess our struggle? Because we want others to think that we are better than we are. But you know what? I need every drop of God's grace that he will give me today. And I don't just need that. I need you. Or you're going to add my book to this list. And I don't want that. You know why? Because last week we saw we have one life. Death is coming for all of us. And it doesn't matter what you do. Death is coming. And if we have one life, then today in our text, what we're being reminded is there is a way to waste life and its own foolishness. There's a way to maximize this life, and it is in wisdom. And Solomon, if you've not been with us, we've been walking through Ecclesiastes, and Solomon has done all of his research, and now he's ready to report. 
He's ready to report his findings, and that's what he's doing. He's giving his exhortations, and what he's going to bring us to today is that wisdom is better. Wisdom may not be able to keep us from death, but it can keep us from wasting our life. May not be able to save us ultimately. He's already said that in the earlier text. Wisdom may not even be able to provide lasting gain and deepest satisfaction, but it can provide us, help us from wasting life, and that it is the better choice than just being foolish. Someone once said, Be wary of becoming sermon proof, sitting under preaching that is faithful to the sacred text without feeling any compulsion to respond accordingly. So let me say it one more time. Be wary of becoming sermon-proof. We become like that, don't we? Sometimes we just, we hear faithful preaching, and you know what I love about Trace? Every time I'm absent from the pulpit, I know there will still be faithful preaching in this pulpit. I know that whether it's Matthew or whether it's Kevin, that we are going to have the word, even... Even when our elders fill in, whether it's Matt or Jim Brown has in the past, it will be faithful preaching, right? And so what we have to be careful is that we don't become desensitized to that, sitting under preaching that's faithful to the sacred text without feeling any compulsion to responding accordingly. You know who said that? This guy in May on Twitter. You know what I would say? Be wary of posting stuff you're not living. Be wary of crafting an image because you're trying to fool us and you cannot fool the one that matters most. Be wary of giving out wisdom that you don't live. Be wary of knowing the right thing to do and not doing that. So let me ask you a question as we come to our text today. Are you living wisely or are you living foolishly? You could simply look back to last week or maybe even this morning. Every moment spent on sin is foolish and wasteful and they're never coming again. Those moments are gone forever and we did not steward them well. As we saw last week, obviously death comes for everyone. And then when we think about sin, sin is a presumption that God's not going to strike us down in that moment. Since the foolish thought that there's more pleasure than pain, if I choose this, we don't think about the pain. And sin is always deceitful and destructive. And that's why we desperately need wisdom. So our passage in a sentence this morning is, let us be those who seek the Lord's wisdom and walk in it, so we will not waste a single minute of our life on the foolish path of pain and perishing. Let's be those who don't just hear about it, and say, man, that was a good sermon. That sermon introduction was powerful. And then we go to lunch. And we just keep down the path of pain and perishing. Let us be those who seek the Lord's wisdom and walk in it. As we come to Ecclesiastes 9-11, we're going to go ahead through 10-20, though, initially. And what we'd sent out to you, we were going to cover 10 one through seven. The rest of it really all goes together. But the rest of it is a hot mess by Solomon, that's for sure. I love what Philip Ryken says. He says, this part of Ecclesiastes is not a carefully constructed argument, but includes a variety of short stories, case studies, maxims, proverbs, comparisons, and exhortations. It seems at times like life, as one thing often runs into another without any obvious point of connection. As James read it, it went from one thing to the next and then back to another. It's sort of like a conversation sometimes we have with our children, you know. You, they bring it back around. You're like, well, that was three exits ago, you know, and so... Here they are. I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther says, Solomon really makes some harsh transitions. I'm like, yes, Luther, he does. He does. So how can we figure out what this text is about? Well, let me help you. Eleven times the word wise or wisdom is used. Ten times the words fool, fools, folly, or foolishness is used. So 21 times one of those two are used. And then he has a particular focus with regard to leadership because he'll use the word king four times and the word ruler three times. So in general, he's talking about wisdom and foolishness and then he'll give us a specific lens, a specific application of leadership and those are above us. For instance, he, he says, woe to those whose leader is a child. Amen to that? Amen to that. So 
through all of these different literature devices, what he's emphasizing is there is a wise way and a foolish way to live your one life. Students, school is getting ready to start. I pray the Lord would come back at the end of next week and we won't have to do that. Amen? Yes, Lord, even so, come now, right? Because I've already been through ninth grade, fifth grade, fourth grade, and first grade several times, you know? And so I'm, I am ready uh, to, to be free uh, from that aspect. But as we jump back in, there will be a wise way to live at school and a foolish way to live at school. There's a wise way to live at home and a foolish way. And what Solomon is trying to tell us Wisdom is the better way. Wisdom is the better way. But what he's going to warn us is just a little bit of folly can ruin a whole lot of wisdom. One tweet can take you down in this world. One action can undo a whole lot of good that you've stood for. As early as actions don't change the truth of the things that he wrote here. They just seem tainted a little bit. Especially the part where he talks about holiness in the pastor. Seems out of both sides of his mouth with it. It doesn't change the truth on it. So let's jump into this text and let's just begin where Solomon does. Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. If you want a summary to see that, you can see uh, that he says in verse uh in verse 15, there was found in it a poor wise man talking about the city, and he by wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say, wisdom is better. And then verse 18, wisdom is better. And then verse 17, go back to the words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better. So wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. That's where we begin with this truth. Now, wisdom is needed. We live in a fallen world, and, and Solomon is always trying to figure out the stuff that doesn't make sense. So he says in verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared in evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We live in a fallen world where having speed or strength or smarts doesn't always mean success, right? You can have all those things and it not correlate to that. And that's what Solomon's trying to figure out because it's like the fastest should win. Usain Bolt should win if he's beating me, but there may be one out of a hundred races. I get him, right? And, and then the strong ordinarily should win and the, the wise should have bread and the intelligent should have riches. He said, but, it, but it's not always that way. We live in a world where, where we live in a world where as football season gets ready to kick off, there's such saying as that's just the way the ball what bounces. There it is, yeah, just the way the ball bounces. That sometimes the team that should win does not win because of one way or this way. Now he says because time and chance happen to them all. But what you and I know is that what happens in life is never arbitrary, but always under God's authority. That there is no such thing as luck or fate. I always love when, when people, uh, sometimes in the summer, uh, some of these staffers on teams that I serve, you know, will say, hey, good luck with the sermon. Uh, there are times where I, there was one guy, I was out at Glorietta, and every night, literally, he would come and say, hey, man, good luck with the sermon. Finally, on the last night, I just said, you know luck has nothing to do with the sermon, right? You know, but he was a stage actor, and so they would, you know, break a leg, you know, and I just had to say, you know that sermons have a lot to do with providence, right? And not, not luck. That uh, If it were luck, then, you know, we're all in trouble already. So he just says, look, some things happen in life. We need wisdom because some things happen that we can't always figure out. But what we can trust is that next note for you there is that we don't always know what God is doing, but we can trust him. So we don't understand. And the reality is we just don't know the times. We, we really don't know the seasons. You know, if the fish knew there was going to be a net, how many of you think the fish would have swam a different direction? If the bird knew there was going to be a snare, how many of you know the bird would have been, I'm going to go somewhere else for this seed, thank you very much, right? Would have gone a different direction. But the reality is sometimes we get in situations, and not just because of sin, just because of life. We get in a situation and the walls close in around us. And, and there's some difficulties, some things that we may not even be able to escape with regard to, to hardship. I watched just briefly last night uh, a hockey player who, who'd grown up. His dad um, 
worked at a rink there and from early stages this kid was a, a phenom in hockey phenom and doing incredible things he went to where he wanted to play for Boston University and in within the first 11 seconds of starting his college career he scored a goal and then as they were they were moving toward a, a defensive play his head rammed into the side of the rink and he's been a quadriplegic ever since and he said in there my dream had come true and then my nightmare began he had no idea he talked about the night before how excited he was he could hardly sleep as a freshman being able to start this collegiate game and 11 seconds into that game it was all over 11 seconds all of those practices and all of those things Tara was we were talking last night with Kevin uh, at, his, at his house <laughs> by the way Lauren we were at your house uh, we were talking la last night and uh, we wanted to ding door uh, ding doorbell ditch <laughs> I couldn't get it out uh, but Kevin's it's too far to run away <laughs> so uh, he would catch us but we were talking about one of Arabella's friends who when the tornado came through obviously several years ago he picked her up from school she'd actually gone to a piano practice and then he realized the storm was getting so bad they didn't have time to get back to their house so he pulled into Lynn circle to be at his in-laws house and if you're not familiar with Lynn circle Lynn circle got shellacked by the storm matter of fact uh, Tara said that uh, they didn't even get that time to get out of the car and the car began to be lifted and a tree fell on the front of the car and a tree fell on the back of the car and that's actually what kept the car from being picked up by the storm but I got to tell you if you have your children in the car and you knew a tornado was about to come slashing through the neighborhood you just pulled into would you pull into that neighborhood no we would find another one but the problem is we don't know the times and that's why above all we need wisdom as we even try to navigate this life we need wisdom because we don't know why because wisdom's better and he gives you an example in 13 I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun it seemed great to me there was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it but there was found in it a poor wise man and he by his wisdom delivered the city so he's saying look we need wisdom and here's why there's a king who has all of these resources and if all things are held the same he should crush the city easily but there was one wise man there weren't, there weren't a lot of men in the city but there was one wise one and they listened and we don't know how he outfoxed this king with all the resources Solomon just lets us know he did and the key to that was this man's wisdom and so wisdom is better is what he's trying to show us and, and though he's then going to say they forgot him, they didn't acknowledge it, and I put there in your notes, though wisdom often goes unrewarded and underappreciated, there's still value in it. He goes on to say, uh, yet no one remembered that poor man. Man, isn't that us and Jesus so often, right? He delivers us and then we forget. We forget the one who, who saved us. And, and sometimes when we get out of the trouble, right, we're just glad to be out of the trouble and we forget the one that played a critical role in that. And so he goes on to say, look, they forgot him. But he says in verse 16, but I say, wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So though they've forgotten him and they've moved on, wisdom is still better. And that's been demonstrated. And he'll, he'll go on uh, to say then, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than weapons. Uh, something that you and I probably learned early. The loudest voice is not always the wisest voice. You know, Sometimes you have to learn that in church business meetings. But the loudest voice is not always the wisest voice. And uh, Riken says it happens all the time. A man tries to rule his family or run his business or take control of a church by throwing his weight around, usually doing a lot of yelling in the process. But a wise man does not feel the need to do a lot of shouting. That if the words are of substance, they don't have to be shouted. There's a, a quiet spirit and that wisdom is better than even these weapons. But there's a problem. He says, but one sinner destroys much good. Let me, let me just say a word because here's, he'll go on, look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench 
So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So back to back, he gives you these pictures. One sinner destroys much good, and dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. If you think that your sin does not impact us, you're wrong. We keep trying to, to emphasize this, right? That my sin's not going to make a difference. Your sin always makes a difference to you, your family, and our faith family. And it doesn't take a lot of folly to ruin a bunch of wisdom. My friend Tony, uh, there was a place, the Flying Burrito, downtown in, in New Orleans. And he used to always use it as an illustration because it probably was not the healthiest of places. I'm not sure what the, the grade was on sanitation at that place. Sometimes you could see some things that it's just best to eat in the dark. But he would always ask this question, how many roaches does it take to ruin your burrito? You know, and for most of us, it's just one, you know. Uh, it only takes one to, to ruin it. And, and so here we think about one sinner. Just think about Adam. Think about Achan. Think about Absalom. Think about everyone with an A in the Bible. And think about one sin and yet the ripple effect of those of those uh, consequences. And so what doesn't seem like a big deal, like, man, it's just some flies in the ointment, but their carcasses turn what smelled sweet into a stench is what he's saying. And so what doesn't seem like a big deal can often lead to brutal damage. And one sinful person can do a lot of damage. So a couple questions, are our families and our faith family blessed by our walking in wisdom or are they burdened by our walking in foolishness? And then are we letting a little foolishness undo a lot of wisdom? One careless phrase, one thing that we view as a little sin, or as I've already said, just, just one tweet that we put out there, just a little bit of folly can undo a bunch of wisdom, which gets us to truth number two. Wisdom is one direction and foolishness the other, and both are driven by our heart. So, so how can we know which path we're on? Well, he says... In verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Uh, the bottom line of how you need to understand this is the wise are those headed toward God and the foolish are those headed away from him. The fool is the one that doesn't have fear of God in their eyes. The, the fool says there is no God, the psalmist says. And so the wise is the one that's headed toward God and, and the foolish is the one headed away. The Bible often considers the right side, the good side. Uh, this isn't a political statement, so, and you know, don't go home and be, beat up those people who lean left and be like, I told you you headed the wrong direction. The Bible says it right here, right? Uh, the Bible treats the right side as the good side. The psalmist will say, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your, right, your hand shall hold me, your right hand shall hold me fast. Jesus is seated at the what hand of God? You see it at the right hand of God. In the final judgment, the sheep will be on the, but the goats will be on the, and so you see it over and over. And so Solomon says here, a wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. It's just saying that the ones that are headed toward God are headed in the right direction. The ones that are headed away are headed in the wrong one, which then brings us to some important questions. Which direction are you headed? Are you moving toward temptation or away from evil? Are you moving the right way in discipleship or falling away spiritually? Are you drawing closer to the people of God or going off by yourself? Only a fool goes the wrong direction in life. And what is it that, that determines this? He says it's our heart. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Uh, our heart plays a critical role in leading us to the right place or to the wrong place. It's in the same way that Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, says that really what we think with our minds determines what we do with our bodies. So Romans 12, 1, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and, and so verse 1, it said, therefore, by his mercies, that we would present our lives, that we would present all ourselves to God. We'll only do that if our mind is being renewed. If our mind is being squeezed into the power of the world, then we're going to do what everyone else in the world is doing with our body, with our actions, with our lives. But if our mind is being changed, then that's going to determine that we do something different with our bodies. Matter of fact, when the disciples were scourged, when they were whipped for being obedient to Jesus by, by continuing to preach Jesus in Jerusalem, it says they went away rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering. So what they were thinking changed what they were willing to endure with their lives and, and with their bodies. And so in the same way, however we're thinking, so it's just not our heart. Jeremiah warns us above all, our heart's deceitful. 
But the essence here is whatever we're inclining toward, whatever we're thinking toward, then that's going to determine which way we head. And so this morning, I guess a really important question is, are you inclined toward God or away from him? Is your, is your, or are your urges toward him, away from him? Do you, do you have a growing appetite for the word of God or does the Bible taste stale? Are you moving toward or away from God in prayer? Are you getting more serious about sin? Or have you stopped pursuing personal sanctification? Because our heart is going to drive which way we go. And, and someone asked me uh, at one of the question and answer times with Camp Pastor a, a few weeks ago, you know, what do we do when, when our heart doesn't seem broken by the gospel? And I said, we pray. We pray and we ask God to break our cold, desensitized hearts. We pray and we ask once again, incline our heart toward you. That's why I pray that often every Sunday because if he doesn't incline our heart toward him, prone to wonder, are we? Prone to wonder, chase the things of the Lord, chase foolishness. So incline, change my want to is what we're praying. Change my want to to be what's worthy, to be what's wise. Why is that important? Because without God's grace, the next point there in your notes, the sub point, we would all be fools on the wrong path and not realize it. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Uh, Again, Riken says this is the definition of a fool. He seems to be the only one who doesn't realize he's a fool. And then the question is, is he on the path letting everyone else know they're a fool by calling them a fool? Because sometimes that's what foolish people do, right? Y'all are all wrong. Y'all are all wrong, and I'm right. Let me just say a word. If people who love Jesus and love you are all on the same page and you're on a different page, they may not all be wrong. It is the fool who says, you guys are all wrong here. You guys are wrong here. Or the other way it can be interpreted is just by what he's doing, they're like, he's a fool. We recognize that. He's a fool. And so it's the, the biggest thing is, he doesn't realize he's fool. One of the scariest verses for me in the whole Bible is when Solomon did not realize that the Spirit of God had departed from him. And, and though we live in a, a different age of the Spirit and the giving of the Spirit, we should see this as a warning. God, please help me not to be a fool and not realize it. Help me not to be foolish. This is why we need people to speak into our lives. I can't see this little mark on my face, but I gave it to myself in sixth grade because I sneezed. I was, I was taking notes with a pencil, and I went to cover my mouth. I did not see wisdom, see sense. I didn't put the pencil down. I was getting, getting my hand up quick and jabbed myself in the face with a pencil. Lord's good providence. I didn't take out my eye, you know. I went to my teacher and said, I think I stuck myself with a pencil. She said, you did. And it stuck with me ever since. And so... I forget about it, honestly, until people come up. And I love the people that start wiping without asking, you know. I'm like, hello, I'm Landon, you know. I love people that just think that I've put a mark on my face for fun. And, uh, and so the reality is that I don't see it. And, and one of the things that why I need Tara in my life and why I need Eric and that accountability in my life and why I need our elders is because there are times when I don't recognize sin in my own life, but they do. And I need them to say that and to point that out so that I'm not a fool walking around not even realizing I'm a fool. Without God's grace, that's what we are. So if God opens our eyes to see our foolishness, that is a grace to us. Don't regret that or begrudge that. Be grateful that he's saving us from ourselves and saving us from wasting this one precious life that we have as a part of this there's a special application for leadership and that's where we move to next there's a wise way to deal with fools especially those in leadership and so where he moves next he says in verse 5 there's an evil that I've seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves now normally you know, if we were reading James, we would rejoice that slaves are free and that the rich are not just given the, the right spots. But what he's meaning here is there are things that are out of balance that should not be in balance. What he means is the immature are having a place of prominence and the mature are not having a place of prominence. Those who are equipped 
are, are not having an opportunity versus those who are ill-equipped, that they're having an opportunity to lead. And, and in case you have been under a rock, there are a lot of people in our world who don't fear God and live only for their agenda, which means there are a lot of fools in our world, right? And this may be news to you. I hope it is. I hope you haven't been exposed to many of them. Uh, but some of us live with fools, right? As Terence, she'll give you a word on that. Some of us live with fools and their foolish behavior disrupts the life of our home. Some of us work with fools, right? Ask your coworkers. Some of them do. And they do foolish things and it frustrates us and it makes us angry. And then there are fools in government. I love what Mark Twain said. He says, I was speaking of a fool and then speaking of Congress. He says, but I repeat myself, you know? And so there's this, this idea. I, uh, we have often seen in our world, and at least it seemed this way in the school board where, where we grew up in my hometown, those who mess up move up, right? You're like, really? You mean they had issues here at school, so we're going to promote them to the school board because that's awesome, right? But it seemed to happen over and over, and maybe you've seen it at your workplace, you know, that you're just, it just boggles your mind. Again, Martin Luther says, just as dead flies ruin the best appointments, so it happens to the best of counsel in the state, in the Senate, or in war, along comes some wicked rascal and ruins everything, right? Those wicked rascals. And speaking of leadership, though, uh, some of those rascals are lead pastors. Uh, I heard a lot of horror stories this summer from youth ministers who served with foolish pastors. So uh, while he's talking about kings and rulers, I, I want to talk about leadership in general in some ways. And, and especially with pastoral leadership, one pastor, one a youth minister shared with me, part of the reason he left the church where he was serving was because the lead pastor wanted to build a roller coaster on their campus. And that was going to be his means of sort of reaching out to the community. Fortunately, there were elders that, that pushed back on that. Uh, our elders are in full agreement. That's a part of our... <laughs> Should the vote go well today, that's phase two. Of, uh, you know, we're going to call it one flag over Tupelo. And so uh, we'll, we'll see. Another uh, pastor told his youth minister there were not enough cool kids in the youth group. He wanted the youth minister to get the starting quarterback and the captain of the cheerleading squad, and then the rest of the cool kids would follow, because that's what we need, right? Uh, I heard of one lead pastor who would who would come in, the youth minister was sitting at his desk one day, the lead pastor came in and, and said, hey man, I thought up a good strategy for you. He raced everything on the guy's whiteboard, wrote this strategy, and then walked out and said, hey, get to it. Right? What a blessing. What a blessing. I've not even begun to talk about pastors who made all their staff wear the same brand of clothing. Right? Or those who use church funds for the development of their personal websites or to advance their book sales. Yes, there are a lot of fools in leadership, and it's not just in government. Not just in government. So how do we respond to foolish leaders? Well, we don't return folly with folly. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you. You ever had a boss mad at you? You ever had a coach yell at you? It's a blessing of many athletes. Have you ever had a husband lose his temper, a father, a teacher? What do we do? If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So we don't return folly with folly. Stay where you are and stay calm. <laughs> and that sounds like a public service announcement, right? If someone gets mad at work this week, stay where you are. Shelter in place and stay calm. Look for further warnings from Matt Laban, right? And so speak... Stick to your post and speak words of gentle wisdom. I love what Derek Kidner said. He says it's better to have one person angry than two, right? And so just, uh, just because someone else gets upset, uh, also it doesn't mean that we have the right to walk away from that relationship. Too often we see that in church, don't we? Too often in church we see people who easily just walk away from those who love them and care about them. Something gets sideways. It's why I often tell you, no one knows more about how to walk toward people who've walked away from him than the Lord. So no one is better equipped to help us keep walking toward each other than the Lord, who's been walking toward people who've walked away for years, generations, right? And so the way to deal with foolish anger is not to be intimidated by it or respond in kind, but to keep calm, which we can only do by his grace. You know what? It's only his grace. Uh, there are times when we are called to leave a bad work situation or there are biblical grounds for separation and divorce or we need to hold someone accountable so they can see their foolishness but most often we want to be as jesus in first peter 2 when reviled he did not revile in return
If the world sees the world in us, they will not see Jesus. And so even in our reactions, and this is a part of what Paul tells Timothy, we have to train ourselves for, for righteousness because our natural reaction is to be angry back and to fight fire with fire, or in this case, to fight folly with folly, and then we have been overcome by evil rather than overcoming evil with good. And so our only hope here is knowing here's what God wants, so praying, and even in that moment, make my song rise to you. We sing that when, when temptation comes, right? To make my song rise to you, that we, we train ourselves to pray. Pray immediately. Ask Jesus for help. What we saw in Hebrews 4, that we would have mercy and grace in our time of need. 1 Peter 2 talks a lot. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 23. We don't have time today, but you should write that, that passage down and consider uh, reading it this afternoon in light of staying calm and reacting in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Here's the second thing we do with foolish leaders. We pray for them to be mature and wise and not to use their position of privilege for selfish pleasure. Look in verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, O lamb, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier you, O lamb, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. It's said that I think with Charles XII, uh, he was a child king. He would, he would actually ride horses through, through, the, through the castle and tear up stuff with his grandmother and they would feast and, and craziness. Uh, it, it said that all of the pastors preached this text on a Sunday. As, as a response to that in hopes too of being able to reach him woe to you a land when your king is a child and it doesn't mean that just just like Josiah you know that we have a leader who's eight but when we have leaders that act like they're eight that counts as well right when you have leaders who act like children uh, and and what what they're doing it says that they're feasting in the morning you know why they're feasting in the morning because they partied all night they stayed up all night so they don't know when to go to bed they don't know when to eat in a way that would help serve the kingdom best they're doing everything for their own game for their own personal advantage and so when we have leaders who rule for personal advantage it usually brings disaster on those that they lead and so he says happy are you when your king is the son of nobility and your princess feast at the proper time and they do it for strength and not for drunkenness that they do it so that they can serve well so that they can steward that opportunity better and that's what we need to do we need to pray when our leaders are immature or even incompetent, we need to pray for the Lord to provide what they need. When they don't know when to eat, when to go to bed, and they don't know when to stop tweeting, we need to pray for them to know how to act right and to, that the Lord would save them from themselves and to steward that opportunity well. So pray for them to be mature and wise and not to use their position and privilege for selfish pleasure. And then the third way, we need to speak and pray for their good. Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Uh, one of the commentaries, uh, the, the author, his chapter, based on the flies, and there's, we'll get to a snake here in a moment, and then this bird here, he said, a fly, a snake, and Twitter. And so, uh, because Twitter's a little moniker, is a little bird, for those of you who don't know that. But it says here, look, Here's the reaction. What we should do is speak and pray for their good. Exodus 22, 28, God already in his law said, you shall not curse a ruler of your people. So they were not supposed to be cursing whoever was leading them anyway. And as we often consider, 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all our people. What I would say to you is, we should pray for our leaders more than we post about them on social media. We should pray for them. And, and here's why. I'm not really worried that anything I would say is going to get back to President Trump. I am worried what impact it will have on Arabella, Adelaide, Adoniram, and Alistair. I wonder the training of... There are times that we say this is wrong, but that's different than just constantly having a critical spirit that tears down, tears down, never acknowledges the good. And so here we're called, you know what? Even when you have an awful leader, don't say anything about pray. Pray, be guarded in what you say, be guarded in your thoughts. And again, not because I'm worried about what Mayor Shelton would find out. I hope what he finds out, I hope what's whispered to him is how often we pray for him. I hope what's whispered to our city council is how often we're interceding for them rather than complaining about things that they do or don't do. And so here, this is how we react to leaders that we, we don't return folly with folly, 
If they're immature, incompetent, we pray for them. And in the end, we don't gossip about them. We take those things to the Lord. All right, which gets us toward the, the close. Last two main truths in our text. The wisdom will not preserve us, preserve us from every harm. There's great benefit in life to patience and preparation. So there's wisdom. We don't often want to take the time to be equipped in the way that we need to be equipped. Here's what he goes. He goes back. Go back to verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. I laughed this week saying, I wonder if this is where sticks and stones may break my bones. came from uh, right there. But the, the reality he's saying is life, life happens, and some of us have dangerous jobs. And so this isn't just for a lack of preparation. You can dig a hole and then fall in it a minute later. You know, there was someone we knew. Who is it that dug a hole and then broke it, stepped in it, and broke his leg? I can't remember who that was, but uh, dug a hole and then stepped in it, broke his, broke his own leg. And then, you know, as we, uh, even, even Rook's a great example, right? Uh, Rook is very cautious with all that he does. But even this past week of you can't control all those things. And that tree swayed back and hit him and he broke three ribs, you know. And so I ate some ribs last week. He broke something, you know. And so... <laughs> You know, we, life happens with this. And, and so we want, to be, we want to be cautious. The great theologian Elvis, who's enshrined all over our town, uh, I, I, honestly, Tara helped me, but I wanted to say, since everyone puts these guitars up everywhere and everything's about Elvis, first of all, can we just say, is that not amazing that Elvis is still a big deal? Like, the tourist buses are still coming to the hardware store. I'm like, man, this is amazing because my man's been gone a while, you know, and... You want to see worship, you go to Graceland and look around that grave when people get there. Woo! It's something, right? I wanted to say, in light of all the guitars being put up, I wanted to put a guitar here that said, Elvis was never here, but the king is. You know what I'm saying? So, thank you very much. So, I, I was going to say that. Tara's like, you're such a pawpaw, you know? So, the great theologian Elvis, though, once said that wise men say only... Fools rest. Oh, okay. So if we put everything to Elvis tunes, you'll know it. Okay, all right. Now I'm seeing. Then uh, only fools rush in, right? And so it's what you see in, in the next in verses 10 and 11. So there are things that, that, that happen, but there are also things that happen because we don't take the time to prepare and we're not patient enough. So verse 10 and 11, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. So he, he uses two illustrations here to say that preparation and patience are beneficial on the path of wisdom both the blacksmith and the snake charmer here, that by not taking the time to do what they need to do, it makes it difficult and even dangerous, right? And this verse, um, if the iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge, but he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. The pastor who pastored my church in college in Baton Rouge, Zor Baptist Church, his father used this verse because he didn't want to go to seminary. He was like, let me just start out and let me just minister. I want to just minister. I've been called to minister. And his father would use this verse on him saying, it's true. You could, you could just jump right into ministry. But if you would take time to prepare, it would help you so that it's not as difficult as it would be without having the skills that you need to be equipped further. And I, and I would affirm that in my own journey. Seminary was certainly beneficial. Lack of preparation, whatever your field, often makes progress difficult. I really want to go see a doctor who went to med school. I really do. I don't want to see a guy who stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night and thinks he's a doctor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I got some Tylenol at home I could deal with, you know? And so uh, we often don't want to take time to do this. Riken asks, how sharp is your blade? Are you hacking away at life like a fool or staying on the sharp edge of wisdom? Living wisely may take more time at the beginning, but it saves time in the long run. And so make sure you have the right tools for the job God's given you to do. And then take time to prepare them well. It's like the snake charmer then who jumps in but doesn't take the time to charm the snake. You're going to get bit, right? You're going to get bit. And so there is great wisdom in being equipped. Even though God calls us, he's not against equipping. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4 says that pastors and teachers and prophets are given for the equipping of the saints. For the work of ministry that we may be equipped and of course the greatest thing God equips us with is his word he equips us with his word and so some of us are rushing in and want to be armchair theologians without taking time to actually be in the word Proverbs says the fool just wants to make their opinion known 
We got enough of that. We need people who take time to be equipped to know the right thing to say and the right time to say nothing. And that takes being equipped in patience, which we don't always have. There's wisdom in that. Here's the last truth. Wisdom can be seen in our words and in our work. In our words and our work. Verse 12 says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. So people can tell if we're wise or foolish by what we say. That's what the Proverbs would say, that the way people could tell who the wise were, just listen to them talk, listen to the overflow of their heart. And here, where it says the words of the wise, the words of a wise man win him favor, there is an alternate reading that, at least on the bottom of my page, is a footnote for you there. It means that the committee who put together that translation said this could be an, an acceptable rendering as well. The words of a wise man's mouth uh, are gracious, is the other way to understand that word of favor. That these, these words are gracious. It's a, it's a word of a grace. Ephesians 4, 29 through 30 says, Our words should be good for building up, fit the occasion, and give grace to those who hear. Man, we who've received grace, it's awful when our conversation lacks it. It's awful. Colossians 4 says our conversation be full of grace. And our conversation will be full of grace if our heart is full of grace afresh, knowing what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And then Proverbs, I, I once preached a sermon, The Way of Wisdom, with our words from Proverbs. Just some reminders there. The words of the righteous are a fountain of life that feed, heal, and protect. The wise exercise restraint with their words. The wise think before they speak. The wise listen before they speak. The wise do not gossip or hang out with people who do. And the mouth that speaks wisely is a great treasure. Those were just truths that you see in Proverbs over and over. But here's the problem with the foolish. How many of you, that phrase, have you ever put your foot in your mouth? No? No? Have your words ever got you in trouble? All right. Well, we, we have all been foolish then at times. It says in verse 12, then the lips of a fool consume him. And so the words of the foolish, they just cause problems for themselves. They can't get out of their own way. They, they're, they're wounding others. They're, they're putting up roadblocks in their own path and then he says in verse 13 the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolish it starts out just foolish but the end of it is basically insanity and depravity it's just evil madness and so we go from bad to worse that the fool isn't going to get better in their communication or conversation it's going to steadily get worse and then ultimately the fool is full of empty predictions and promises in verse 14 a fool multiplies words Though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. The fool's like, I'm going to do this. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be there. This is going to be great. This is how it's going to be. And, and Solomon's like, you don't know that's going to happen. You don't know that's true. So the foolish are those in particular who make empty promises. The foolish are those who speak uh, with certainty about what there can be no certainty about. You ever been around some of those? I'm certain I have. And so you, you, they, they know for sure these things. So by what we say... That's why one of the best prayers we could pray every morning is, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. So that what comes from our heart will be his words. The only way that occurs is if we're storing his words in our heart. Then, well, let me just, I want to say this. Paul Tripp says this about words in our homes. So think about wise or foolish. Listen to the talk that goes on in your home, how much of it is impatient and unkind. How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How do we fail to communicate hope? How do we fail to protect? How often do our words carry threats that we've had it and are about to quit? Stop and listen and you'll see how much we need to hold our talk to the standard of love and how often the truth we profess to speak has been distorted by our sin. So one good way to assess isn't even the words of others. Just listen to the conversation at lunch today. Uh, listen to the conversation in the car as you drive from here. Uh, there are plenty of times where the foolishness I've said has been repeated in my own children, and it's my fault. It's my fault for not stewarding my words well. 
The other way that people know whether we're wise or foolish is by how we work. It says, verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him. He doesn't know the way of the city. The, guy, the bottom line is it's not really his work. He's doing all these things that wear him out. He can't even find the way back to the city sort of thing. My favorite is when the, the Proverbs will say, I can't go to work today. There may be a lion in the road, right? You know, and so they find excuses to be lazy. The problem is that comes with consequences, as we see in verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So the fool is the one who thinks things will get better by itself, right? They don't work to fix the problem, and, and, and so there's, there's just foolishness that's in that. But verse 19 Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens everything. Wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Uh, obviously, we know money does not answer everything. Solomon himself would say, money isn't going to save you from death. Money isn't going to provide lasting gain. His point here is the one who works has the wine, has the bread, has what they need for life. And so the wise work and have what they need. Just a couple of reminders, thinking on work. God is a worker. Uh, he commissioned our work, and that was before the fall. He uses our work to provide for our needs and the needs of others, and he uses our work as a means of advancing his gospel. If you do not work at your job as unto the Lord, your coworkers probably don't want to hear your evangelistic presentation. There are people who do the minimal work necessary just to get a paycheck. That better not be any of us. And then if you proclaim your worth ethic more than you demonstrate it, there's a problem. I'm a hard worker, right? I usually am triggered as we have benevolence opportunities, you know, often here. When they begin with, I'm not going to lie to you. They probably are. That's how it starts. Right? Now, I'm not going to lie to you. You already started there, okay? I'm a hard worker. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell me. Show me. Let it be demonstrated, right? And why? Because when we are workers who are faithful, we image God very well. This is what Jesus says in John 17:4, talking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So one of the ways that they can see wisdom is by how we work and we image Jesus and the Father in those ways. As we think about wisdom and foolishness then and we think about closing the sermon out, the primary way God answers our prayer for wisdom, how many of you have ever prayed, hey, God, give me wisdom, right? And and maybe about a specific situation. Did you know the primary way God gives us wisdom is he gives us Jesus? And Jesus is the fullness of all wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He also gives us his word and so he gives us the resources that we need when we grow in his word we will grow in wisdom and so we must walk in that and the path of wisdom is yielding our lives to christ in his way every day every day that we yield to his path there this is the path of wisdom so a couple questions as mitch comes to to lead us in a song of response to this a couple questions for all of us are we maximizing life by walking in wisdom or are we wasting life by walking in foolishness? Is there a little bit of foolishness right now that's threatening to undo a lot of wisdom in your life? And, and let me just say, if there's something you've been covering, you know, or concealing and hiding, you know whatever we confess has already been covered by Christ. Right? So do not let a little bit of foolishness threaten to undo all the wisdom that's been there. Based on your desires, which direction are you headed when you walk out of here this morning? The wise are those headed toward God and the foolish are those who are headed away from him. Foolish are those who are dogs who return to their vomit. You see, Azertia, he had one affair, but then he had another one. And then the reality is, the only reason he confessed is he was caught. Who knows how long that affair would have gone on if there had been another one. You know what Proverbs says? It's a dog that returns to its vomit. And we don't learn. We don't, we don't learn. So which way are we headed? Are we headed to sin and more sin? Or are we headed to Christ? How are you responding to someone foolish in your life? Maybe you're even riding home with them today. Maybe it's a boss at work. Maybe it's a coach or a teacher. Are you responding foolishness with foolishness? Are you responding by just gossiping and criticizing them and never praying? Tearing them down, but never, never praying and work, begging for the Lord to work in their life. Is there any way you're foolishly being impatient or not willing to make the necessary preparations? So you're making life harder on yourself by not being equipped properly. Maybe God's called you to be equipped in something and you just want to do it. But, but there's wisdom in being equipped to do that for him. 
whatever that looks like in your journey. And then lastly, is, is there evidence of wisdom or foolishness in our words and our work? If people this past week listened to us and saw the way we worked, would they think that we were wise or foolish? Would they see Jesus or would they see themselves? And you can know the answer then, which it is. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Please help us not to waste this one life on foolishness. We have certainly seen a lot of good wisdom that's been undone by just a little foolishness. I pray that you would help us. Father, I pray that you would change our want-tos, that you would incline our heart toward you, that we would, by your spirit and your word, assess today which direction are we headed toward you or away from you. If our heart is cold and desensitized to you, would you help us in these next moments, not even to sing, but to pray and ask you to break our heart afresh for what you've done for us in the gospel with Christ. That you would incline our heart to you and we would beg. We would not stop praying until you've answered that prayer. Father, I pray that it would be evident that we walk in your way by how we work and the words we use by how we respond when there are foolish leaders that we have to deal with. I pray that you would help us not to waste our life. There is benefit and wisdom. In the short days that we have, it is better to walk in your way than our own. How many times do we have to see that in the lives of others and see that in ourselves until we will be finally and fully convinced? God, I pray for Artaxerdia and his wife, Lori. Would you protect and save that marriage? Would you heal the deep wounding? Would you, would you provide for the children that are caught in this wounded? For a faith family that they had a pastor in June and now he's gone. I do thank you for the plurality of elders that are in that midst. Grant them wisdom to lead well. For the seminary students that had come to that seminary in part because Dr. Azurdia was there or Dr. Reed at Southeastern, may they be reminded afresh, Christ will never fail us. And to set their hope there, for Dr. Reed and his family, would you heal? Would your grace be evident? And today, Father, for John Gibson's family that he left behind, would you even today grant the joy of salvation would you provide for them and then father would you protect us from being so foolish please help us God we desperately need your grace and we desperately need each other in Jesus name we pray amen let's stand and sing